Certain information set forth in the podcast may contain forward-looking statements under applicable security laws. These statements are not guarantees of future performance, and undue reliance should not be placed on them. Although forward-looking statements contained in this presentation are based upon what management of the company believes to be reasonable assumptions, there can be no assurance that forward-looking statements will prove to be accurate. LifeSci Advisors and the company undertake no obligation to update forward-looking statements in the podcast should circumstances or management's estimates or opinions change. This podcast is for general information purposes only. It is not an offer or solicitation to buy securities and does not constitute investment advice. We have a coil which is contained inside of a helmet and the patients wear this helmet. And the coil, there's an active coil which treats the brain or the area of the brain that we want to be treating in this case for depression. It's the front left part of the brain. But there's also another coil up in there that makes the same type of a noise. So in our study, we had roughly on the response side for this placebo, and these patients were not on medication, over 70% on a response level and over 50% on a remission level. And you have to remember, we're treating these patients that are the most difficult to treat. Hello, my name is Neil Canavan, and this is Benchtop Bios podcast series by LifeSite Partners, where we introduce healthcare investors to the people and the pipelines driving the biotech sector forward. Today, my guest is Christopher Von Yako. He is the president and CEO of BrainSweat. Chris, welcome to Benchtop Bios. Thanks, Neil. It's a pleasure to be here. All right, let's start off by grounding our listeners on the company at hand. Chris, where is BrainSweat headquartered? How long have you been in business and, and what sort of business are you doing there? Well, great question. So I'm actually located in Boston where our U.S. headquarters is, but the company's domiciled in Jerusalem. It started back in 2003, basically more of an R&D company for a number of years. And then at that time, a few years later, 2007, it went public in Israel on the Tel Aviv Stock Exchange. And then uh, I came to the company back in January 2020, just prior to the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And what exactly do we do there? <laughs> Good question. So our main focus is we make a device that is focused on mental health. We have a non-invasive device, which is set up to help people that have treatment-resistant brain disorders. And our main focus currently today is on uh, depression, obsessive-compulsive disorder, most well-known as OCD. Mm-hmm. And our first addiction product or treatment for smoking addiction. All right. We're going to get a lot more on that in a few minutes. But if our listeners want to imagine what we're talking about, think of an electric hat. So the mission here at Benchtop Bios is first off to get to know a bit about the people in charge. And Chris, that would be you. I looked at your early education. I'm guessing you were born somewhere north of Times Square, which is where I am. Where were you born, sir? I was born in a town called Melrose in Massachusetts. It's just about 15 miles north of Boston. Okay. So it seems you spent most of your education, nearly all of your professional life, roughly in that area. What makes it so special for you? Was it just to be striking distance from Boston, or you like to watch the leaves turn? (laughs) It's a perfect time to do that right now, actually. The leaves are turning. Fall is the best time of the year. No, I think both my parents actually came from Europe. My father came in 1956 from Hungary, Budapest, and my mom came in 65. 
my father was a physician and the only thing he knew was Harvard. So he ended up in Boston and just actually enjoyed my whole life here. It's been really centered around Boston. I've traveled all over the world, but like you said, I found it home and I really love it here. Plus I'm a big fan of the New England Patriots. So it keeps me here, you know? All right. So you also tipped off a question that will be coming later, uh, our listeners, having to do with Hungary. So now I know why. All right. So, yeah, you started at a rather elite education from the get-go. There was a boarding school early on called Cardigan Mountain School in New Hampshire. One assumes you wore cardigans there, followed by a private all-boys high school in Connecticut. Now, this tracks a bit similarly, that last part, to my experience. We had a dress code, coat and tie every Monday. Do you guys have a uniform? Yeah. So I entered Cardigan Mountain School, which is located up in New Hampshire. And I was there in eighth grade and ninth grade. It was also an all boy. We wore coat and tie every day. Oh, in fact, actually, we had a uniform every day that we wore. And then I went from there to another prep school down in Connecticut called Avon Old Farms, which is also, it was located in the town of Avon. And uh, yeah, we wore a coat and tie every day to school. I actually didn't own my first pair of jeans until I was in uh, college. Oh, my God. No, I remember in the 10th grade, they allowed us to wear sneakers, but they could only be Adidas. So it's like, <laughs> oh, yeah, leather. So, yeah. No, well, yeah. I was going to say, even prior to Cardigan, I was at a parochial school in Melrose, and we had a uniform there. We had to wear coat and tie every day there. So pretty much throughout my whole schooling up to college, I was wearing a coat and tie. Just one more briefly on my background. On Mondays, the kids were always better behaved. <laughs> it was really noticeable. Okay, yeah. so anyway, give me just a touch more on the academic life. Uh, again, to reference my experience, I was learning college-level, entry-level biology in the eighth grade. Were your disciplines pretty ratcheted up? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I was in all the major AP classes when I was in high school as well. So it sounds like a very similar experience to you. All right, so for undergrad, you go to a small liberal arts college called Bates. Uh, this is referred to as a little ivy. And there you majored in physics and math. You had a side over a Spanish with that class in 1990. So did you have an idea at the time how all that math might be applied or you just the way of thinking just appealed to you? I had an affinity towards math. I think I first kind of discovered it when I was in third grade. And I don't know, it was just one of these things like, at home, we always spoke Hungarian, so I wasn't very good, I would say, in the areas of like English or writing papers at that time. And I just kind of, math always clicked with me. You could write a paper and it was very subjective how the paper was, but one plus one always equal two. And that's sort of the way I went at it. So I had this real good affinity for math and I threw out my career or well, throughout my learning in elementary and then high school and then through college, I've just always really enjoyed math. It didn't occur to me until just this moment that this is a universal language. Okay. It is. Yeah, right, that makes exactly. a lot of sense. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. So graduate work, you head off to MIT for way more math. And this is a degree in nuclear engineering. Just tell me a bit about that. What were you going to do with nuclear engineering? So that's a great question. So as you mentioned, I was also a physics major. So in college, I got involved in something called nuclear magnetic resonance okay. spectroscopy, which sounds very sophisticated and technical, but it's the basis of what people well know as MRI, 
right? So magnetic resonance imaging. And at this time, it was sort of the mid to late 80s where MRI started becoming a little bit more popular. People are more wide known. People are very familiar, obviously, with CT and X-ray imaging, which CT is a form of X-ray imaging. But MRI is really an amazing technology, which has really kind of changed medicine. It allows physicians to be able to see soft tissue. And most notably, one of those soft tissues, which wasn't really well seen through X-ray and CT imaging, was the brain. And so at this time, when I was graduating from college, I had to sort of make a decision. Am I going to go to med school like my brother and my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather? Or am I going to be the black sheep and go into engineering? And I decided to uh, go into engineering. And I went off to MIT to focus in what's called radiological sciences and technology, which was in sort of a portion of it was in the nuclear engineering department. So my focus was really in MRI imaging when I went to MIT, but I had to do the whole host of nuclear physics classes as well at that time. Okay, so that makes sense to me as far as your first job out of school. Oh, let me back up just a second here. While at MIT, you signed on for some education at the Sloan School of Management. So you didn't want to spend time at the bench. You wanted to go right into the business aspect. I think I always felt this, that for me, I wanted to have a technical background, but wanted to apply it in business. And so when I was, like you said, when I was at MIT, I ended up starting to take a bunch of classes. I actually took a full year of classes at the Sloan School, but I was advised, you know, go off and get a job and then come back and then finish business school. And I never did. Unfortunately, one thing or another led me in many, many different directions, but it was so invaluable to actually get that sort of background from a business perspective. And when I was there, obviously, there was lots of people I was talking to from a business perspective. They were all probably like five years after college who went and worked for different companies. And so I got a lot of exposure to a number of people that had then come back and then got their MBA at the time. Well, it doesn't seem to have held you back. I realized that the usual path. Yeah, you just go. And then you let the company pay for the MBA, right? Right. But it didn't seem to hold you back. You went into your first job. You were a product manager at a company called Radionics. Uh, this was later acquired by Covidian uh, in Burlington, Mass. A snapshot of what you were doing there? What were you selling? Uh, it's very, very interesting. So when I graduated, I graduated in kind of a recession. It was a recession. I graduated in January, and then I started looking for a job. And it took me a number of months to actually find a job. And if this was the best first job that anybody could ever imagine, it was a small private company that was run by a ex-professor at MIT. He was actually the youngest tenured physics professor in MIT history in the Department of Nuclear Engineering. And uh, he was running this company that his father had actually started. It was a neurosurgical company. So we dealt with products for neurosurgeons in the brain. Mainly the focus was in the brain, but we did a bunch of other things on top of that. And one of the products that they did was a new technology which had just been coming out, which to treat brain tumors non-invasively. And it was using radiation and mm -hmm. it was using one high dose of radiation in a single session. It's called radiosurgery. 
And it was very much a transformative type of technology as opposed to opening up the brain and trying to remove the brain tumor. Here was a technology that was allowing people to do, in essence, a 30-minute procedure of delivering a high amount of radiation into a focal spot in the brain to try to kill the tumor or shrink the tumor and not have it open up the brain. Now, the interesting thing here was when I was at MIT, I actually saw the technology in use and I never kind of combined the company together, but it was amazing and really kind of throttled my career into many, many different ways and sort of my love of really helping physicians, which is what I've been doing for the past 30 years. So you seem to have a natural curiosity about this organ in our heads. Roughly seven years you were at that company, but you also did uh, some continuing education at BU in neuroscience. Tell me just a bit about that. Yeah. So in 1995, I moved over to head up the European division for this company. We were growing very quickly. And at that time, I made my way a number of times over to Hungary. And when I was in Hungary, I was talking to the professor of neurosurgery there. And he said, hey, Chris, why don't you think about doing your PhD? And I said Mm. to myself, well, this is an interesting idea. And my father, I think, was always interested in me getting an even advanced degree. And this was in uh, biomedical sciences. And so I started doing some project work there and taking some classes. And I also... (laughs) I also said, okay, I'm going to supplement this with some work in the U.S. as well. So I went and took a class over at BU in neurosciences at the same time to kind of help with this Ph.D. project that I was working on. Wow. We'll get back to that Ph.D. in just a minute. Your next position in on resume is circa 2000. This is a GM role at Odin Medical Technologies, and this is MRIs. This was acquired by Medtronics in 2006. Now, there's a little bit unraveling here. You did work for Medtronics for a year, right after Odin in 2002. Then you go back to Radionics for three years, starting in 2003. This company was later acquired by Integra in 2014. But in 2006, you begin four years tenure at Integra. So is this a space, a small world? Do you guys like all know each other? Yeah, it's a very small world. I think there's about four to 5,000 neurosurgeons And at this time, the field was growing pretty quickly and very rapidly. And there were a number of companies that really focused in the neurosurgical field. And when people think of neurosurgeons, they think of typically operating on the brain, but neurosurgeons also operate in the spine as well. So it's sort of a cross platform between the spine and the brain. We ended up selling the company Radionics to, it was at the time it was called Tyco Healthcare. And then eventually became Covidian over time period, which then eventually became Medtronic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, all the companies are pretty well known. And there's a lot of, uh, I would say, cross-pollination between the people and the products between the space. But it was a really interesting time because things were so growing so quickly from a technological standpoint with imaging and computers, and there was just a lot going on. I actually like this aspect of your story because I've talked to any number of CEOs where they seem to be agnostic as to what they're CEO of, which sort of puzzled me. Now, there's two more positions I'd like to briefly mention. One is an imaging company called ActiveViews. This was from 2010 to 2013. And then your first CEO role 
This was a company that dubbed interventional pain called Neurotherm in 2014. This company was later acquired by St. Jude Medical. Concurrent with both of these, you get your PhD. You went to Hungary in earnest to a place called the University of Patch, I believe. Wow. <laughs> so just, I don't know, tell me, what was your thesis? What was my thesis on? Yeah. Oh, so it was in, in a... language I would understand. Yeah, it was in a particular place. I would call it neuronavigation. Neuronavigation is a technology which is using the ability to get to a point in space in the brain minimally invasively. So we developed a technology back at Radionics back in 1993, 1994 on neuronavigation, and it was using an articulated arm. It's probably too technical, but in essence, it's a GPS for the brain. It's a GPS for the physicians in order to get to a certain point in the brain that they want to do something. They either want to remove some tissue and you want to do this all minimally invasive, right? Because there's been sort of this push over the past 30 years in medicine to do everything more minimally invasive. And the way you do minimal invasive technology is you either take a camera, like an endoscope, and you go into the body and you're using that imaging to be able to guide you which way you want to go and remove something, right? A lot of people are familiar with what's like a colonoscopy, right? So the ability to kind of go inside the body. The other way to go inside the body is by using imaging outside X-ray or CT or MRI or a number of other imaging methodologies, and then use that as sort of your map, your map, and then use a pointer to be able to help you get to a certain point in place, right? And I think maybe some people are familiar these days with robots, right? That's another way of like helping you kind of use a robot to assist the physician to keep steady and get to the right place that they want to go in a direct manner, in a minimal invasive manner. Cool. Cool. I mean, it reminds me, it's just a bit of my graduate work. I did uh, work with confocal imaging, where mm-hmm. you can look at a specific depth. Cool. All right. So let's go on to the, the company at hand. You take the reins of Brainsway in 2020. Why? What was the appeal? Well, there were four main things, I would say, that really brought me to the company. So the first thing was my love of non-invasive technology or minimal invasive technologies, specifically in the brain right? That was the main driver. I was like, okay, this is great. The second main driver was the differentiation in our technology. I'm assuming we'll get to that at some point. Our technology is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And as we were talking about before, it's the ability to put energy into the brain, in this case, into the neurons to get to the fire back again in a minimal, non-invasive way. And that's what it is. It's a non-invasive way of doing that. And so there have been technologies that have been around for a number of years. In fact, when I was running radionics for the second time back in 2006, 2007, right after I sold it to Integral Life Sciences, this company came to me. One of the first companies in the field came to me and said, hey, we have this technology to do this. They showed it to me. I looked at their data. I wasn't very impressed with the data, but they said, hey, we're going to take this $200,000 system and we want to combine it with your neuronavigation system to make sure that the device is in the right place every day. And our neuronavigation device at that time, our GPS device to make sure we were delivering whatever we're trying to deliver. In this case, 
their technology, you know, was about $200,000. So combining these two together and there was no reimbursement in the place. And then the focus has been with psychiatry. And I thought this is just a horrible idea. Mm. Luckily, they kept going. They kept moving forward, right? They kept moving forward with that idea. But so there are other forms and we call them traditional TMS systems out there. There are other forms of traditional TMS. And I wanted to make sure that our technology was differentiated. So that was the second reason it is differentiated. Our technology is called deep TMS as opposed to traditional TMS. And our technology goes deeper and broader into the brain, which has a number of really important components in it. And maybe we'll get into that in a little bit, but it's for a more, I would say, efficacious treatment in the end. And then the third reason, because the technology goes deeper and broader into the brain, it allows for us to not only have a single course of treatment, but allows us to be able to treat different types of areas. We've already talked about it, one in particular, OCD, Mm -hmm. as well as smoking addiction, which is our first addiction. So the ability to go deeper allows us, our technology, to really be a platform technology. And then the last reason I joined the company was really because I spent my entire career focused on cancer, mainly cancer, right? Minimal and non-invasive ways of cancer. Mm -hmm. And each year in the United States, and I, I think a lot of that was because my father was really a cancer physician. He was a head and neck physician, and his kind of first focus was trying to make cancer treatments better. So he pioneered laser surgery way back in the early 1960s. He was the first physician to operate with a laser. And it was used as a cutting device in in cancer. And that was sort of where I got my love of getting involved in cancer. But when I was thinking about sort of my next passion, I was thinking about, okay, what else could I have a bigger impact on? So as I said, 1.8 million new cancers per year. And if you think about just depression alone, you're talking about 10 times that. Over 20 million people have depression each year. So overall, it was that impact that I could make sort of on medicine that I was really excited about. And again, as I mentioned uh, at the beginning, I started in January 2020, which was just a couple of months before the pandemic had started. And little did I know, you know, sort of the magnification that would be put on mental health and also what the pandemic would do negatively for mental health. I hate to ask, but there's been an uptick in business because of of COVID? Well, with COVID has definitely put a eye, as as we all know, on mental health. You know, most people usually just think about physical health. Mental health is physical health. And it has helped sort of propel and reduce the stigma. We still have our challenges from a business perspective. Obviously, in the first couple quarters, we saw a dip there. But in the third quarter, Mm. we started to begin to grow again, which was great. And I think in general, what COVID has helped us do is put more of a focus on mental health, not only that, on technologies outside of drugs, which are helping people. So yeah, I think in general, it's definitely helped the business. We're going to touch on the business aspects in just a few moments. We're going to talk about reimbursement and adoption. But first, let's get just a bit more about the science, the clinical science. This is approved for major depressive disorder as well as OCD and smoking addiction. Let's start with the first, as mentioned, which is major depressive disorder. Could you just tell me about the registration trial? How was it conducted? And 
could you just touch on how the placebo effect was handled, which can be fairly pronounced in depressive studies? Yeah, great question. So we got our first FDA clearance back in 2013. And as you mentioned, it was specifically for depression. And the way our technology works, we have this amazing blinding and people probably wonder, what does that mean? So when you do a randomized control study, the control is you're doing an active versus placebo. And, or sometimes people call it a sham, but I'll call it a placebo. So people are getting an active treatment and some people are getting this placebo treatment and they don't know what they're getting, right? The patient doesn't know. The person that's treating them doesn't know. The person that is doing the evaluation on how well they're doing doesn't know. And the physician doesn't know. So they're very well blinded. This was probably the number one reason I joined the company because of how well we do the blinding in this. We have a coil, which is contained inside of a helmet, and the patients wear this helmet. And the coil, there's an active coil, which treats the brain or the area of the brain that we want to be treating in this case for depression. It's the front left part of the brain. But there's also another coil up in there that makes the same type of a noise. I was going to say noise. Yeah. Yeah. So for any of your listeners who have ever been into an MRI machine, it's the same type of kind of sound that you would get in an MRI machine. There's also a sensation on the scalp. So whether you're getting an active treatment or we're getting the placebo treatment, the patients would hear and feel very similar sounds. And it was between this sort of this active and placebo where you need to show a statistical difference and be able to kind of prove to the FDA that something was happening here. So in our study, we had over 200 patients and it was a multi-center. So there was a number of different places, both in Israel, we had centers in the United States. And we were looking for two things. In depression, you're looking for two things. Whether you're talking about our treatment or you're talking about medication, you're looking for somebody to have a response. And ultimately, you want somebody to go into remission, right? You want their depression to go away. So the response, there's no imaging to date that will give you or a blood test that will give you a diagnostic to tell whether you have depression or you don't have it anymore. It's really a scoring method, which is done by the psychiatrist. And let's just make it simple. Let's say the score is between zero and 100, where in this case, 100 is not an A in school, but it's the worst type of depression that you could possibly have, the highest level, right? So let's say a patient comes in with a score of 60. And ideally, you want to get them below 10. Below 10 is where they're in remission. So a response is where you get somebody to go from a 60 down to a 30. So it's in essence, you're dropping their initial score by 50%. Okay. And again, like I was saying, you're trying to get somebody to go from a 60 really down to a 10. So in our study, we had roughly on the response side for this placebo, and these patients were not on medication, about 40% of them. So about four out of 10 of them got a response and a little bit more than three out of 10 of them got to remission. But now when this got to the real world, this got even better. So you're talking typically over 70% on a response level and over 50% on a remission level. And you have to remember, we're treating these patients that are the most difficult to treat, right? These are the ones that are failing medication, right? So these are the ones that are very difficult to treat. 
So talk to me about, well, first, uh, the short question, adverse events. Yeah, so there are essentially no adverse events with the technology, right? So I say the biggest adverse event is headaches. Uh, people are getting headaches when they're sometimes they're doing the treatment because there's a, sort of this knocking on the head, essentially, during the treatment itself. But the treatments, you know, are 20 minutes long, and most people have no issues with them. Even in our trials, you're talking about a 5% sort of dropout rate, which is extremely low, right, right. especially if you compare it with medications, right? Medications have lots of side effects, whether it's weight gain, sexual side effects, GI side effects. Um, in some cases, the medications can also induce uh, suicidal ideations, which obviously is not what you want them to do. All right. So with this, it's not one and done. It requires multiple sessions. So what would be the average amount of sessions before you achieve remission? And then how long does the remission last? So the numbers I was giving you in our study, our study was originally 20 treatments. So it's once a day for 20 days. However, we did some additional work in our study. We went additional two times a week for an additional 12 weeks. So it was a total of 44 treatments in general. From a reimbursement standpoint, which is really what matters, is how this technology gets reimbursed. Mm. The traditional reimbursement is 36 treatments. So they'll come in once a day for 36 days. Got it. We're going to go more into the reimbursement setting in just a few minutes, but first let's touch on the OCD indication. Sure. Was it roughly the same procedures as far as placebo and roughly the same amount of sessions and durability and so on? So very good question. So when we originally started with OCD, which is a much more complex disorder, our goal was to get a reduction in the OCD scoring. And as opposed to 50%, the goal was, let's get somebody a 30% reduction. We felt that was probably the best we could do. And where depression, there's probably 30 plus different medications on the, that are approved by the FDA today on the market. And then you're talking about patients that will, or psychiatrists will work with the patients and they'll combine these medications also. Mm-hmm. For OCD, there's only five medications that are approved by the FDA. So a lot less. And I think, I believe four out of five of those medications are actually antidepressants. So OCD is a much more complex disorder. And we didn't talk about it, but from a depression standpoint, upwards about 40% of patients will not respond to medications. In the case of OCD, it's even higher. It's about 50%. So they're kind of stuck with OCD. The next level of care is to do a more intensive therapy where they may be hospitalized, right? And so our goal here was a 30% reduction, which could help people kind of get back to be productive in life. OCD is, people think of perfectionism, which is an issue, right? But for people with OCD, clinical OCD, it's really preventing them from being able to live a normal life, right? Whether it's washing their hands from, they're worried about germs, right? And where they're, they're washing their hands excessively for hours and hours, where their hands are getting raw, Or, for example, where people keep checking things, they keep checking the locks on their door, and they can't leave their homes. It really makes it really difficult for these people to work. So in our original study, it was 29 treatments, so every day for 29 days. Again, it was roughly about a 20-minute treatment with the technology, 
And we were on the order of about four out of 10 patients would get that response. And in our real world studies, it's more about six out of 10 getting that response. So it's amazing what this has done. And I'm sure you have some other questions about it. So I'll, <laughs> I'll try to stop there. Sorry. Well, I just, I just wanted to point out there is a connection between these two uh, maladies. There was a paper just out in the Journal of Psychiatry Research. This is from UCLA. They looked at OCD patients who are also have major depressive disorders, which apparently these two are comorbidities fairly often. And the conclusion of this paper was TMS was, quote, associated with further alleviation of both OCD and depressive symptoms, particularly in an individual with more severe illness. So, yeah, there is a large body of literature out there for this. Now, let's switch gears. Let's talk about business. We have touched on this. You talked about reimbursement. You talked about the limit. You said it's roughly 36, you said? thirty On depression. Yeah. yeah. Okay. 36 treatments. Yep. All right. So adoption. Are you doing educational outreach? I mean, before I was working on this podcast, I was unaware of this technology as related to OCD. So are you you're out there educating? We sure are. October is a big month because uh, particularly it's Depression Awareness Month, but also the second week of October is OCD week. And we do a lot of education, whether it's doing education both to providers as well as psychiatrists, as well as sort of a grassroots approach from the bottom up. We do a lot of work on digital media, and we continue to sort of advance things that we're doing from a digital media perspective. And I talked to a lot of people. I was just recently at a mental health awareness walk that's uh, put on by NAMI. It's uh, um, there, there are national alliance for mental sort of health education mm-hmm. in Northern California. And I was an honorary uh, chair of this. And we get people from all hosts that come to this event, this walk, and we have a booth there and people walk up and re- literally probably less than 10% of the people there are familiar with this technology. When I first started, I kept on calling it the best kept secret in medicine, <laughs> but it's my job to really make sure that more and more people are aware of it. Awareness is a huge thing that we're focused on. All right. So I'm a provider. I see the data. I'm thinking, okay, I could use this device. But we, as you touched on earlier, this thing ain't cheap. So let's say I don't really want to make the commitment to the device, but I'd like to try it out. Can I rent it? Yeah. So we work with our potential providers and our potential providers could be hospitals, mm-hmm. the outpatient setting in a hospital. It could be single psychiatry practices or larger psychiatry practices. And there's also been networks that have opened up similar to like, say, LASIKs networks, right? That open up and just do LASIKs surgery, right? So there have been specific TMS or in our case, deep TMS centers that have opened up. And we work with our customers in a number of different ways. They could buy the technology. They can lease the technology. Uh, which is essentially like renting the technology as okay. well. We haven't touched on on the recent rollout for the device in smoking addiction. Who was your target provider there? Would that be PCPs? So it's interesting. So if you think of psychiatry and you talk to psychiatrists, and we've looked at this quite a bit, within psychiatry, the patients that they have, obviously the biggest concern for psychiatrists is suicide, right? Mm. Someone actually taking their life. Obviously, depression is a main issue there, or mental illness for someone taking someone's life. But if you look at the swath of patients that they're seeing, 
somewhere on the order of about 40% up to even maybe 70% or 80% of the patients that they're seeing are smokers. And so our first kind of foray with smoking addiction was with our current customers. They know the technology, which was a great way for them to kind of talk about the technology. Obviously, they're really focused on depression and anxiety and PTSD and OCD and these different things. But their patients end up tending to die from a comorbidity from smoking, right? Something that's happened, whether it's you know issues with their heart. And as we've been saying quite a bit over the last several years, mental health is also physical health as well. So uh, we started out to begin with in psychiatry with our customers and have had, a, I would say, a good response. But similar to OCD, when we first launched the technology back in 2018, end of 2018, the issue really is around reimbursement because you're talking about a number of procedures and having that reimbursement is really helpful. And right now it's cash pay. And that's the way we started out with OCD as well. A year ago, we had zero coverage from reimbursement standpoint with OCD, but because we got additional data and met with lots of insurance companies, we're now up to about over 85 million covered lives for OCD. We just got Cigna, just granted an amazing coverage for OCD. So today, what we're working on for smoking addiction is specifically on gathering additional data in order to talk to the insurance companies, what's happening in the real world to establish reimbursement. All right. Just three more questions. The first related to the continuing rollout, international sales underway, planning? Yeah. So over the last several years, even before I joined the company, roughly about 10% on that order, maybe a little bit higher, had come from international sales. We have clearances, even more clearances. I think we have 12 clearances in Europe. And we've been partnering together with international collaborators to sell the technology both in Europe as well as in Asia and Australia. And we just moved. I made a strategic move a couple of months back we had our general manager who was here in the United States. He's now moved back to Israel. And his focus, one of his big focuses is looking at the international business. Okay. So we're trying to do some things there. But as it is in the United States as well, it's, it comes down to reimbursement because the technology needs to be reimbursed because it does cost some money. So from a cash pay perspective, that's a little bit of hindrance. But we've had some luck in certain countries. And we're looking further to expand our international presence as well. All right. And then let's wrap up with, are you looking to expand on the technologies? Is this thing optimized or is there a next gen coming? Yeah. So last December, we showed our next gen technology at a conference called Brain Stimulation, which is focused mainly, I would say, on researchers. Um, It happens every two years. There's a meeting next year as well. But our technology, whether it's our technology or traditional TMS, is only hitting a certain amount of the neurons in the brain. The beauty of ours is that we go deeper and broader, which means we're treating more neurons than the traditional technology. And we go broader, which allows us not to miss the target. Because we roughly know where the target is, but you could miss the target. Where traditional TMS is very focused, it's very focal, right? So think about it like a laser beam versus sort of like a flashlight. But what we're trying to do is with our newest and greatest technologies, we're trying to actually improve it in order to even treat more neurons. 
And without getting too technical, roughly, I would say in a given volume, our technology is treating about 10% of the neurons there. And we have a technology that we've patented and that we're getting ready to roll out. It's going to take some time to get it rolled out because we have to do clinical trials and everything. But we'll get up to about 90% of the neurons being treated in a given volume as opposed to that only 10%. And we believe that that's going to have an impact when it comes to a clinical impact as well in the future. All right. Well, finally, in order to get to that future, you're going to need some cash. So just give me a snapshot of what's your current cash position and what sort of conversations might you want to have at, like, say, JP Morgan or with anyone anywhere in the near future. So we're actually in very good shape when it comes to cash. In March of 2021, we raised uh, an additional $45 million. So at the, at the end of last quarter, I th- believe our cash position was just north of $52 million. And last year in 2021, we burned about $2 million for the year. So we're actually in a very good cash position. We have cash to last us quite a bit of years from now, but our total focus is on growth, right? Ensuring that people are understand about this technology, make sure that there's access to the technology, making sure that it's affordable and making sure that it's acceptable. The really things that we pride ourselves on is superior technology, superior evidence, and superior support to our customers. Splendid. And that is a wrap. Ladies and gentlemen, I have been speaking with Christopher Ronyako. He is the president and CEO of Brainsway. Chris, thank you for joining me today. Neil, thank you. It was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this week's Benchtop Bios. I hope that this episode will serve as yet another data point to guide you in your investment strategies. If you wish to hear more of Life Size Benchtop Bios, please subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Google. Also, if there's a company or a particular executive you'd like to get to know, I do take requests. Please send those to ncanadad at lifesizeadvisors.com. Until next week, then, goodbye, or for that matter, good sell, whatever boosts your portfolio.